Lord, thank you so much for all that you are doing among us here at St. Thomas's. Thank you for the history um, of this church. Thank you for the new thing that you're doing. And we pray that as we look at your word, we may encounter the living word, Jesus Christ. Amen. Really warm welcome to you from me as well, if you are new. If you don't know me, my name's Ben. I'm the vicar here, married to Ellie, who was playing bass in the band just a little bit earlier. And um, it's our privilege, along with Lee and Rachel, to lead this amazing um, thing here at St. Thomas's, along with some very other important people, one of whom is my church warden, John Pearson, who is sat in the back um, corner over there. John, just give us a wave. John and his wife, Pauline, who is sat next to, became grandparents for the first time yesterday morning. A little baby boy born at four minutes past nine um, in the morning. So um, congratulations, John and Pauline. Last week, if you were here, Lee was teaching us about what it means to be salt and light. And we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount and how we can be agents of change in the world around us. We're going to look at the next bit of the Sermon on the Mount together this afternoon. And it's pretty challenging and it's pretty hard hitting. But my prayer is that we'll be transformed and changed as we look at these verses together. And the reason that I'm so excited about these verses today is because on the back of what Lee was saying last week, you know, it's no good us being sent out to be salt and light in the world if we end up living and looking like everybody else in the world around us. As I said to the 10 o'clock congregation this morning, if being a Christian is just about coming to church on a Sunday, singing a few songs and swearing less than everybody else, you can count me out. If, however, being a Christian is about having your heart and your life and your mind radically changed by the grace of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, if it's about making a difference in the world and sharing the amazing good news of Jesus Christ, then you can count me in because that's what I am up for. And so in your Bibles, if you could turn to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be reading from verses 21 to 30 together. If you're new or a guest or a visitor, you're just checking out church, um, then you can even look at it on your phone. There's some Bibles in the pews in front of you. And as I said, there's some pretty hard-hitting verses in this. But don't worry, we'll hopefully try and work through them verse by verse together this afternoon. So Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21, sorry, 20, verse 20 to 30. Let's start at verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anybody who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or a sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering a, guilt, a gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and sister and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out of prison until you've paid every last penny. You have heard it said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at somebody lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the question that I want us to ask today is, is there a way for us as the people of God to be salt and light and live in a way in which there is freedom and there's joy and there's peace? Is there a way where we can look different to the rest of the world around us? Is there a way for our hearts to be aligned with that of Jesus so that we can live free from anger and from lust? That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus has a better way of life for the people that are following him. And it's a life of freedom and it's a life of joy. And so today we're going to work through these verses together that challenge us on anger and lust. Now, before we go through these verses together, the key, the key verse for us, I think, just to understand all of this is verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might be sat there today thinking, gosh, I'm stuffed. If my righteousness doesn't surpass that of the teachers of the law, then I'm not entering the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me just explain a little bit, because this verse sets in context Jesus' teaching. The Pharisees and the religious teachers, the religious um, leaders of the day, were obsessed with righteousness. But they were obsessed with looking the part. They were obsessed with doing the right things. But often it was just about head transformation. Now, Jesus is not interested in that per se. I mean, he is interested in what you do. But he's more interested in your motivations. He's more interested in your heart posture towards him, towards the world around you, towards the people that God has put in your life. Jesus doesn't just want us to pretend that we're not full of anger. Jesus doesn't want us just to pretend that we're not full of lust. He wants to eradicate that stuff from our lives. Jesus wants to set us free from religion. He wants us to set us, set us free so that we can be in good relationship with God and good relationship with people around us. He wants us to look more like him. And Jesus has given us two little case studies, if you like, on how that might happen. Anger and lust. And so let's work through these verses together. So verses 21 to 26, Jesus' teaching on anger. Now, I wonder what makes you really, really angry? As I've been working through these verses over the past um, few, well, few weeks, really, I've realized that, I, well, if you know me, I, I think you'd say that I'm, I'm not particularly an angry person. I'm not particularly angry. I'm not, I don't have a fiery temper, any of those things. But as I've been working through these verses, I've realized that there are some things that make me quite cross. And I get quite angry about them. So I'm just going to confess them to you right now. So the first thing is, I cannot stand litter. I absolutely hate it. When the general election was happening, I actually said to Brogan at one point in the run-up to the general election, any party that says that there's going to be a, you know, you're going to get a criminal record for littering, I'm going to vote for them. 
Because I just cannot stand it. People dumping stuff all over the street. Our street in particular around the back is particularly bad. It makes me so cross. That's one thing. A second thing is I hate clutter and I hate mess. So if I cannot go to bed unless the washing up's done, unless the house has been hoovered, if we've had lots of people over. Um, clutter around the church makes me really cross. All of these types of things. Cannot stand it. The third thing is laziness. Like I just... I don't know why, I'm just confessing my judgmentalism to you now. I have a precondition to judge those who are lazy. I like to get lots of things done in one day, all at once, and if people aren't like that, then I tend to judge them. These are things that make me really cross, and I'm, some of them I need to repent of and do some business with God with. We all have stuff in our lives that make us angry. So let's look together at how Jesus says we should deal with it. So verse 21, Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit murder. You have heard it said, do not commit murder. Now, when a rabbi says, you have heard it said, that's a first century saying of a rabbi basically saying, listen up, I'm going to quote the word of God at you. And he quotes a direct passage from Exodus 20, do not commit murder. We all know it. it's one of the 10 commandments. Now, the likelihood is that you've probably not committed murder. You're probably sat here today thinking, gosh, well, if, um, if that's what it's about, then I'm let off scot-free. I'm probably not likely to commit murder. I've not committed murder. Surely I am okay. Well, you might not have committed murder, but you might be tempted to think about thinking angry thoughts about your colleague at work or these kinds of things. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus is really dealing with. So look at what Jesus says in verse 22. But I tell you. Now, this was a first century saying of a rabbi saying, you've heard it, this verse interpreted one way, but listen up, I'm now going to give you the true meaning of this verse. And look at what Jesus says. It's pretty hard hitting. I tell you, even if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be subject to the same level of judgment as somebody who has committed murder. In other words, if you're angry towards somebody, you've already committed murder in your heart. Now, what on earth is going on here? This is pretty harsh teaching from Jesus, isn't it? It seems like it. Now, first thing to say, Jesus is not against all anger. We see that Jesus gets angry in the Gospels. There's, there's a time when he goes into the temple and turns over the money, the money changers' tables and all kinds of things. Not all forms of anger are bad. If you're angry about the level of human trafficking in the world and people trapped in slavery, that's, a, that's probably a righteous anger. If you're angry about the levels of poverty in some of the poorest nations on our planet, that's a good thing to be passionate about. If you're angry about the increasing gap um, between the rich and the poor, even in our own city in Newcastle, that's probably a good thing to be angry about. But not all forms of anger are good. And in the Greek, there's two different words for anger um, that in, in the New Testament. The first one is phumos. And this is kind of like a rush of anger, like an impulse to get angry towards somebody. And it's usually just a flash and then it's over within, you know, a short space of time. So, you know, your housemates might continue to leave washing up, piled up on your kitchen table or by your sink. And every time you see it, you get so angry and you have this like rage towards them. And then all of a sudden it disappears. Now, just to illustrate what this anger looks like, I'm going to show you a little video clip of Jose Mourinho. Now, this was two weeks ago in the Premier League. Tottenham were playing Manchester City. And um, 
Manchester City thought that they'd been awarded a penalty. Raheem Sterling had gone over in the box and Man City thought they got a penalty. It went to VAR, that thing that we all hate at the minute. It went to VAR and um, it was decided that Tottenham weren't going to get a penalty. Raheem Sterling, therefore, some people thought had dived. Now just look at the reaction that Jose Mourinho has and how quickly his emotions change. Jose was pretty cross that, um, well, he was pretty elated at, at the first instance that um, Raheem Sterling hadn't in fact been awarded a penalty. But notice how quickly his emotion changed to anger. That kind of anger is fumos. That kind of anger is, the is like that intense passion for anger that suddenly comes in a split moment. The second type of anger though, and this is the type of anger that Jesus is talking about here, is the Greek word orgizo. Now, orgizo is a kind of more deep-seated anger, like an undercurrent of anger towards a person when they've said something or done something about you. And this kind of anger eats away at you and eats away at you and eats away at you. It could have been that somebody said something to you ages ago. You've never forgiven them. You've never forgotten. And the impact of what they said is still in your mind. And it kind of just gnaws away at you and nibbles away. And it makes you deeply unpeaceful. Now, this type of anger is toxic. This type of anger will rob you of joy. This type of anger will make you deeply, deeply unhappy. And Jesus is saying, if we've got that kind of anger towards somebody else, then it's as we're subject to the same judgment as if we've committed murder. Now, in fact, Jesus is so clear on this that he says, if you call somebody Racha, which was a first century Aramaic swear word, if you call somebody Racha, which means you fool, you idiot, then you'll be subject to this level of judgment. You'll be subject to the courts. Or if you go around saying to people, you're an idiot, you're a fool, then you'll be subject to the fires of hell. Now, the Greek word for fool here comes from moron, uh, moron, which is why lots of people call people morons today. And people are literally attacking the very heart of who somebody is when they say these kinds of things. Now, if we're honest, we all think these kinds of things about people at times, don't we? If you're honest with yourself, I bet you can think about a time recently when you thought that somebody is a fool or somebody is an idiot. And if we have thought that, Jesus says that we're subject to the fires of hell, if that is how we behave. Now, what is going on here? Well, firstly, I think that Jesus is showing us that we desperately need a saviour. We can't possibly live up to this teaching. We need somebody to step in and rescue us and save us. And of course, we know that Jesus did that himself. Jesus came, died on a cross, rose to new life so that we could experience freedom and forgiveness and life in all its fullness. The other thing, though, that Jesus is doing is saying that our behavior, what we believe, does have eternal consequences. Jesus is pretty clear about that. But also the way that we behave, the kind of attitude that we live our lives by now, 
can have consequences for the way in which we experience like bad things now. You know, when Jesus was teaching, hell was a real place that people would have, like there was a nickname for, for an area in first century um, Palestine, Israel that was called hell. And it was so bad that people used to avoid it. And Jesus is saying, look, if you don't deal with these kinds of things, your existence now will be hellish. It'll be awful. It'll be like you don't have any peace, you don't have any joy. These kinds of behaviors will rob you of any happiness at all. Now, in my experience, if people don't have peace, it's often because they've got unresolved relational problems. They're bitter towards somebody. They're angry towards somebody that has said something about them or to them. It's unresolved relational breakdown. And if we're carrying around this level of anger and bitterness and hurt in our lives, we will never have peace and freedom and joy in the way that Jesus wants us to experience those things. And the reality is that some of us today are living with this, this orgizo, this kind of anger in our lives today. And I think that Jesus would say that he wants you to walk out of this place, having dealt with that a little bit and living in some more freedom and some more peace and some more joy. Now, what can we do about this? Well, in verses 23 to 26, Jesus gives us a couple of examples of how we can deal with this level of anger and bitterness and hatred that goes on in our hearts. Now, he says, if you're bringing a gift to the altar and you suddenly realize that you've got a, you know, a relational breakdown with somebody, then leave your gift at the altar, don't, don't present it, and go back and deal with the, the relationship that's broken down and then come back and present your gift at the altar. Now, the people that were hearing Jesus teach this, they'd have thought that this was just Jesus being so over the top. Jesus was teaching this in Galilee. There was only one altar in Israel, and it was in the temple in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is basically saying to people living in Galilee, look, if you've walked all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, which is a fair walk that take you at least a week, if you've walked all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, and you've suddenly remembered that you've fallen out with your spouse, your neighbor, your friend, your housemate, whatever it is, it's better for you not to present your gift at the altar, but instead walk all the way back to Galilee, deal with the relational breakdown, and then come back to Jerusalem, and then present your gift at the altar. It seems so over the top. It's over the top because Jesus is really passionate about us living in good relationships with one another and with God. Jesus wants us to live in these kinds of of ways. Now, this is important because the root problem that leads to murder, of course, is always anger. Like, you don't just murder someone just because you've not, just out of the blue. I mean, that happens very rarely, I imagine. It's usually because you've, you know, got anger problems and it's built up and built up and built up. It's also important, Jesus is setting this in the context of worship, because the whole of our lives are worship. This is what I was talking about at the beginning. If being a Christian is just about coming to church, singing a few songs, and then going home, count me out. But all of our lives are worship. That means the way that I speak to Maddie or to Brogan or to Zara or to Anna, that's worship too. The way that we treat one another, the way that we think about one another is worship. And so it's no good coming here, looking really holy, waving your hands in the air, doing all the right things, whatever it is that you think Christians should do and then living like the rest of the world. 
everything is worship. God wants his people to dwell in unity. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul expands this teaching a little bit. Paul gives the church in Corinth some instructions about how they should deal with, you know, serving communion and the Lord's Supper and all of these kinds of things. And after Paul has given them basically the words to say when they remember Jesus' death and resurrection, he says, don't come to the table. Don't come to the table if you've got unresolved sin in your life. Because if you come to the table in an unworthy manner, you will, drink, you will drink judgment upon your head. And this is Paul talking in 1 Corinthians 11. It seems pretty similar to the example that Jesus is giving here, doesn't it, about coming to the altar. In other words, don't come to the communion table with bitterness or hatred in your heart. Be reconciled before you eat the bread and you drink from the cup. Because if you don't, there's going to be consequences. Be reconciled before coming forwards. Now, this is why in the Anglican communion service, we always share the peace. Now, if you've been here when we've had communion, um, which most of you have done at a four o'clock service, you'll know that we always share the peace together. And if you're new to the Church of England or you're new to faith, you might think that this is just the time in the service where everyone shakes hands, kisses each other and has a hug. And that's the purpose of the peace. The theological and liturgical function of the peace in the Anglican church service is that we share the peace before coming to the table so that if somebody has a problem with somebody else in the church family, they can make peace with one another before coming to receive the bread and the wine. That's the liturgical and theological function of the peace. It's so that we don't come with division and bitterness and hatred in our hearts. It's so that we don't come to the communion table as a family with divisions. Now, in verses 25 to 26, Jesus gives another example about um, how we can deal with this kind of um, anger and bitterness in our hearts. And he gives the example of a courtroom. Jesus says, don't let your anger take you to court. Instead, settle the matter quickly before it even goes to court so that you don't even come under the possibility of being subject to being thrown into prison and not being able to get out because you can't afford to. Settle matters quickly. In other words, if you've got a problem with somebody, don't let resentment take root in your heart. Now, I've noticed that often when we get angry with somebody, it's usually over something that we've completely misinterpreted somebody do. It's usually just a miscommunication or a misunderstanding. So let me give an example. So say me and Brogan are in a team meeting on a Monday morning. And um, we're reviewing my sermon from the previous Sunday as a team. And Brogan says something, and he meant it as a, either as constructive criticism or it was just a, a, a passing comment, and I took it really badly. And I thought, how dare Brogan say that? But instead of settling the matter quickly with him, I just let the bitterness build up in my heart. And I think, I think all day I'm stewing on it. I can't believe Brogan said that about my preaching. It's such a racker. <laughs> I cannot believe he said that. But I don't say anything. Two weeks later, we're in church. It's a Sunday. Brogan is on tea and coffee duty. 
I'm in the queue. I'm waiting to get my lovely cup of decaf coffee. We always serve decaf at the floor. Waiting to get my cup of decaf coffee. I'm next in line. And Brogan looks over me to a new person immediate who's behind me. And Brogan, because he loves meeting new people, instead of offering me the next cup of coffee, he offers it to Bill behind me. And I think... Gosh, that's two things that Brogan, Brogan has done in the last two weeks. He really doesn't like me at the minute. I cannot believe it. What is Brogan's problem? He's got a real attitude problem. Three weeks later, we're walking, I'm walking through town on my lunch break. Brogan's on his phone. I walk past him and say, hi, Brogan. And Brogan, because he's having a really intense pastoral conversation, doesn't say hello to me. He just keeps on walking, but kind of waves. And I think, that's it. That's three times Brogan has really annoyed me. What an idiot. And all of my anger suddenly bursts out and I'm angry with Brogan. I'm angry with everybody else in the office. And that's it. It's just like my orgizo, this level of like resentment that's been building up and building up in Brogan has suddenly um, spilled out and it's become fumos and orgizo all in one. Now, all of that could have been avoided had I just said to Brogan the first time, Brogan, when you said that about my sermon, did you really mean what I thought you meant? But instead, I've let the anger build up and build up and build up. Now, this is the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about. Deal with it right away. In fact, Jesus is so passionate about this that he gives some really specific teaching in Matthew chapter 18 on this. Jesus basically says in Matthew 18, Look, if you've got a problem with a brother or sister, if they've sinned against you, what should you do? Well, you should go directly to that person and talk to them about it. Now, that is fantastic teaching. Why? Because if somebody's upset you, instead of going, you know, if Brogan's upset me, I could go to Luke and say, Luke, Brogan's really upset me. I cannot believe he said that. And all of a sudden, I'm gossiping about Brogan. When what I should have done is just gone to Brogan to deal with it. So this, this teaching is so fantastic because it eliminates gossip from the church. So Jesus says, go directly to the person. If you can't sort it out, then you go with somebody else. So take another person. If you can't sort it out even then, then you take it to the church leaders. And if they're to be found guilty, treat them as pagans and tax collectors. This is, this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18. Now, I think that this is one of the least followed teachings of Jesus. And if we were to follow it, if we were to live this out, most relational, all relational problems in the church would disappear. If people in the world, even if they didn't believe in Jesus, were to live this out, the world would be such a better place. There'd be no gossip, there'd be no hatred, there'd be no slander. This is such an amazing way to live. Go straight to the person and deal with it. And can I just say that, go that gossip is just so toxic. It is so toxic. Just deal with it straight away. You know, in our, in our kind of culture that we live in now, it's so easy just to shame people on, on social media, isn't it? Or in public on your Insta story or whatever, make them look a bit worse than they really are. Whatever it is that you do to get back at people rather than just dealing with it straight away. Don't do any of those things. Honestly, if we follow Jesus' teaching here, lots of our problems would be fixed. And the amount of anger and hatred and bitterness in our hearts would disappear. Now, my hunch is that as we've been listening to um, these verses from um, Jesus teaching on anger that some of us have been deeply challenged. We know that we've got resentment in our hearts towards somebody or towards a group of people. We know that we need to deal with it. 
because it's eating us up and we've not got peace and it's basically eating us alive. It's costly to deal with this stuff. You know, Jesus says, make the journey all the way back to Galilee and then come all the way back to Jerusalem. Settle quickly out of court. This stuff isn't easy. In fact, some of it, it seems impossible. But with the gift of the Holy Spirit and trusting in God's grace, we can live like this and sort it out. He has a way for you to be free. Now, the second thing that Jesus wants us to be free from, just as, just as an example about correcting our heart behavior, is lust. Now, the same kind of rabbinic formula is going on here. Jesus says, you have heard it said. So he's going to quote from the Bible. You know when Jesus says, you've heard it said, he's going to quote from scripture. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anybody who looks at somebody lustfully has already committed adultery in their hearts. Now, lots of us are probably sat there thinking, sat here tonight thinking, um, wow, gosh, we all must be adulterers then. Because the whole world must be, everyone must be an adulterer. Like everyone walking around Newcastle is guilty of adultery right now. Now, just as Jesus doesn't want us to be consumed with anger, he also doesn't want us to be consumed by lust. Now, if you think about adultery, adultery does not just happen, over, adultery does not just happen overnight. Usually there's months, weeks, years of stuff that's gone on in somebody's life that leads them to commit adultery. It's not just like something that happens in a split second. It's a heart, it's a heart issue that's been going on for ages and ages. I think that lust is a huge problem in the world right now. We live in such an over-sexualized society. Sex has become completely divorced from love, from marriage, from covenant promises. The world will have you believe that sex is just about fleeting desires, superficial beauty, superficial connection. And the problem with lust, Jesus would have us, what Jesus seems to be saying is that it always leads to disastrous consequences. Now just think for a moment about what the Bible says about love. 1 Corinthians 13, that well-known passage that lots of people have read at their weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. Now, if love is patient and kind, lust is the opposite to those things. Lust isn't patient. Lust can't wait. Lust will have what it wants and it will have it right now. Lust is not kind because if you just want to objectify somebody or use them because they're beautiful or use them for your own desires, that's not being kind. That's being incredibly selfish. That's you just getting what you want out of the relationship. It's basically you using somebody. Now, lust is no way to, lust isn't a good thing for us to have in our hearts. Um, it makes your feelings, it makes your emotions, your desires king in your life at the detriment to everybody else around you. Now, if we think about it, instinctively, we know this to be true. One of the biggest problems I think that we face in society at the minute is the issue of pornography. And the whole porn industry 
is, ba is basically fed by people's lustful desires, by people's, um, yeah, just by people's lust. And the porn industry is worth hundreds of billions of pounds now, globally. It is a huge, huge industry. Now, here are some, some quite shocking statistics that I read in a newspaper just three days ago, some research that's just been done into pornography. 65% of young people aged between 13 and 24 look at porn once a week or more. 35% of all internet downloads are pornography. One, over one in three, of, a third of everything that's downloaded from the internet is pornographic material. One in five internet searches on Google are for porn. One in five. Seven, nearly 70% of all pay-per-view content on the internet is pornography. So this includes Netflix, Amazon Prime, all of the things that you, you, know, you have a subscription for so you can watch content on the internet. 69% of that, of money that goes on pay-per-view content is pornography. 50, this is really shocking. 56% of all divorce cases cite porn as one of the main reasons for divorce. 56%. Now, you don't need me to tell you that we have a problem. And by the way, just if you're sat in church thinking, this can't possibly ever affect me, the most likely person to watch porn, an evangelical Christian. We have a problem. And we have a problem because it is fed by lust. Porn is such a problem because it ruins relationships. As you see from the statistics, it breaks up marriages, it breaks up families. It's also a huge problem because it objectifies women and men. If you, know, if you, if you fit this cultural stereotype of what beauty is, then good for you. If you look like all these people that you see in magazines or on the internet, then good. But the problem is if you don't look like that, then you're completely dehumanized. And the problem is if you do look like that, you stop being a human being and you just become an object to get gratification from. It is an awful, awful industry. The industry is also tarnished by sex trafficking and slavery. So many people are trapped in slavery, are sexually trafficked all over the world because we spend so much money on this horrific industry. The worst thing about it, though, I think, is probably, as I've already said, that it turns people just into mere objects for us to consume or for us to become satisfied by, depending on um, what culture says about these people. Now, this is why I think the so-called progressive argument about, um, that you might hear, you, so many people say to me, or have said to me, you know, well, I'm, I'm addicted to porn, but it's not hurting anybody else. You know, the progressive argument that you can do what you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Well, clearly watching porn is hurting a lot of people. It's breaking up marriages. It's trapping people in slavery. This idea that you can do what you want as long as you don't, it doesn't hurt anybody else is complete nonsense. Because we live in a world in which we're in relationships with people. So everything I do affects everybody around me.
Lust is not just about pornography, though. It's about taking a second look, a third look, a fourth look, when we know that we shouldn't. Now, what do we do about this? Well, I think Jesus says there's a way for us to start to live more free from this stuff, but it's going to be costly. Now, look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you've got a problem with lust, gouge your eye out. For it's better for that to disappear than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation. Like, we're not going to end the service tonight by people gouging their eyes out and chopping off their hands. That is not what, Jesus is not literally talking about gouging out your eye and chopping off your hand. But what he is saying is, if you want to be free of this stuff, it is going to be costly. You're going to have to take some drastic action. Now, here are some of the steps that I think that we might take in order to do this stuff, in order to live free of, to, to live free of lust. Gouging out an eye, the modern day equivalent, might be you choosing not to watch programs like Game of Thrones, for example, which is just full of, well, I've never actually seen it, but I'm told it's full of just soft porn. Like, why subject yourself to that? Like, gouge it out, don't settle for it. It might mean that you don't spend any time with that person at work that you know you're just too attracted to and you shouldn't be, and it's seriously affecting your marriage or whatever, and you're just going to choose, you're just going to say hello, have a nice conversation, but not go on constant drinks after work with this person or whatever it might be. That might be the equivalent of chopping off your hand. It might mean getting an accountability partner, a spiritual director. It might be choosing not to watch Netflix. It might be choosing to give your housemate your laptop late at night or your smartphone or your tablet. It could be any of these things. But Jesus is saying, take action. Do something about it. Now, the reason that this is so important is because we don't want to use anybody that God has made and just turn them into an object. We don't want to look at a brother or sister in the church and just see them as something for us to get visual gratification from or whatever it might be. Jesus wants us to treat each other with dignity and with self-worth and with respect. We want to love people. We want to put other people first. Now, if you're here tonight and you think, oh my gosh, this teaching from Jesus is really challenging. And you know that you need to do something about it, but it just seems impossible. Well, in a way, it kind of is impossible. How on earth can any of us go for the rest of our lives without thinking somebody's an idiot or a fool? It is, some of it is impossible. We can't do this by ourselves. We desperately need, well, we need the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which is the most liberating thing that you could ever hear. And you need the gift of the Holy Spirit to come and sanctify you and make you more like Jesus. If you're here and you're feeling like you have got an anger problem towards somebody um, or you're struggling with something to do with lust or whatever it might be, then please know that Jesus, well, firstly, God loves you so much. 
but he, is, he does call you to repent and believe. To, repent means to turn away from those things. And you can do that because Jesus gave his life to set you free. Jesus came, died on a cross, rose again, took on all of your sin onto himself so that you could live a life free, knowing that you're forgiven, living life in all of its fullness. But you can only do that by choosing to, in Jesus' words, Mark 1.15, repent, turn 180 degrees from your own selfish desires and turn towards God and believe in him. So if you're feeling like you just need some forgiveness tonight, there's good news. Jesus died on a cross and rose to new life. Secondly, if you're feeling shame tonight because of something that you've done, something that you've said, or because of a bad relationship, Jesus came to get rid of shame. Jesus came to exchange your shame for joy. He came to exchange your guilt for righteousness. He came to exchange the mess that we trap ourselves in with freedom. There's freedom for you tonight. It might be that as we've been looking at these verses, you know that you're in a bad, there's a bad relational breakdown between you and somebody. You know that you've got bitterness in your heart towards a member of your family, a member of the church, somebody that you live with, a colleague. Tonight, I just encourage you to deal with it. Offer it to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me to love this person. Help me to not say racha or idiot in my heart about them. Because if you don't, you will live a life full of anxiety. You won't live a life of peace and you will never be fully satisfied. But Jesus is the only way. It might be that, you, as I was talking about lust and pornography, that you've, just, you've got an issue with these kinds of things and you're addicted, to, you're addicted to searching for stuff on the internet, whatever it might be. Well, if that is you, come and speak to either me or Lee or Brogan um, at the end if you feel that that's something that you feel safe enough to talk about with us. Um, but there can be freedom from that in the name of Jesus. There can be freedom from this stuff in Jesus' name. Now, I don't want any of us to leave this place without having had our hearts and our lives transformed by Jesus. As I said right at the beginning, we're not called just to come to church, sing a few songs and disappear. We're called to become more like Jesus. We're called to look more like him in the world. Imagine if we could live out these relationships with one another and the world could see it. How attractive would that be? If we could live in a way that honoured people and didn't objectify them and just turn everyone into a sex object, how attractive would that be to the world around us? There's freedom in Jesus' name. There's freedom from guilt. There's freedom from shame. There's freedom into true relationships. There's nothing that you have done that means God could love you any less. There's nothing that you have done that could make God love you any more. But he wants freedom for you tonight. Shall we stand together?